Open in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I believe it's page 3 in the black Bibles around you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as we begin a new series uh, today of the story of steadfast love. We'll certainly look at some of the surrounding context, but for now, just hear this one verse of, of God's holy and inerrant word. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. You may be seated. O oh God, would you bless the reading and now the preaching of your a holy word, that your people would be built up, anchored in your steadfast love, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if somebody asked you, uh, where in the Bible do we first start to see God's gracious love, uh, God's steadfast love, or where would you go if someone said, you speak about the good news of Jesus, where does it start in Scripture? You might instinctively and, and not wrongly go to John 3.16 and, and get right to the meat of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, um, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Good. <laughs> uh, that's a good conversation you're having with that person. But if they're saying, no, no, but where did it start? You might go a little further back to the beginning of the Gospels. They, some of the Gospels actually use the words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'd say, aha, found it. Another good answer. But then those same gospel writers are quoting the prophets like Isaiah and Joel and others. And so you could go back there and say, ah, that's the promise of the one who would come. But then you realize they're just building upon and quoting uh, the law of Moses, the first five books. And you could keep going back, uh, even here to Genesis 3.15. We have here what has been called the proto-evangelium. That word evangelium just means gospel, preaching the good news. Uh, In one sense, this is the first preaching of the gospel explicitly in Scripture. And so we want to start here, uh, because what if the gospel, what if God's steadfast love had deeper roots than we could ever imagine? Uh, It's it's like you uh, come up to a, a stream of water, like cool, clear stream of water, and you cup it in your hands, and you drink it, and it's wonderful and life giving. But as you sort of go upstream, you realize that that's a stream trickling from uh, just over the corner. You you climb over and you see this lake, this wonderful lake spread out. Picture like Crater Lake, uh, just clear, almost bluish water. You could see down almost to the very bottom of it, and yet it has this endless uh, depth sort of sense to it. And so it's deeper than you thought, but but then you realize it doesn't start here. You, you look up at the mountains and you see this ancient, steadfast, glacial melt that's coming down and trickling into this lake. What if God's steadfast love was like that? What if as we keep trying to trace it back and trace it back, uh, it was deeper than we ever imagined? I believe that that's something you could place uh, your life upon, uh, firm ground that you could have as an anchor for your soul. And so let's look together as we begin this new series called The Story of Steadfast Love. The, the goal as we head up toward, uh, in this Advent season, heading up toward uh, the celebration of Christ's coming, his birth. What led to this? 
Uh, what if we trace the story of the whole Bible, especially the Old Testament? And so today, the focus will be this, the promise of steadfast love. The promise of steadfast love. We're going to see in Genesis 3.15 uh, two things that this first promise of steadfast love means. Number one, it means that there will be a people. There will be a people throughout redemptive history. We'll look at that. Number two, there will come a son. There will come a son. Let's look at Genesis 3.15. Number one, we're going to see that this means there will be a people. And we'll look at sort of the first half of this verse, uh, but of course we'll place it in context. But just that first half says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But what about the context uh, here? Again, maybe thousand-foot view is that we're in this series trying to look at the story of the whole Old Testament. Very briefly, this is a, a flyby. <laughs> um, uh, this is the, uh, we're going to be landing the plane on various texts, but we're trying to put the pieces together to look at the story of the Old Testament. Some uh, would call this uh, biblical theology. Biblical theology, not just in the sense that it's biblical, it's good, it's true, it's from the Bible, but biblical meaning that we're, we're placing the, sort of the greatest context, right? Uh, we look at a passage in the context of the sentence, the paragraph, the book, but also the Testament, old or new, and in the context of all 66 books of the Bible who have one ultimate uh, author in God himself. In some ways, what we're doing in biblical theology and in this series, I pray, is showing what Jesus meant when he said Luke 24, 44, which is the memory verse today. Jesus says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Uh, the law, the prophet, the Psalms, that was a way of saying the whole Old Testament. All of it points to Christ. All of it was leading up to Christ. All of it is about him. So the one author says biblical theology is an attempt to tell the whole story of the whole Bible as Christian scripture. And I pray that we would do this always, not just in a special series. Um, Edmund Clowney puts it this way. Uh, this book is on the book table, uh, The Unfolding Mystery. It, uh, we won't be following his outline, but it's a great companion book for this next month. Uh, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, we have uh, another book by Von Roberts, God's Big Picture, tracing the storyline of the whole Bible. Clowney puts it this way. Anyone who has had Bible stories read to him as a child knows that there are great stories in the Bible, but it is possible to know Bible stories and yet miss the Bible story. The Bible is much more than one author puts it, a golden casket where gems of truth are stored and taken out as needed. Uh, it is more than a bewildering collection of oracles, proverbs, poems, architectural directions, and prophecies. The Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel, but it does not begin there. Nor does it contain what you would expect in a simple na national history. The story is God's story. It describes his work to rescue rebels from their folly, guilt, and ruin. And in his rescue operation, God always takes the initiative. Are you seeing what Clowney is saying? Uh, you can miss the forest. Uh, you, yeah, you can miss the forest for the trees, as it were. And we want to look at the trees. We want to look at all of it together. What did Jesus mean? that the law, the prophets, the poets, all of it's about him. 
Well, that brings us to our book here in Genesis. It's part of what Jesus meant by the law, these first five books of the Old Testament, a Genesis through Deuteronomy. As Jesus makes clear, these were written by Moses himself. Uh, he wrote these by divine inspiration. And Genesis is that very first book of the Bible. Uh, Lord willing, we'll spend good time landing and looking at all the trees uh, in, in the months to come next summer. But for now, as we come to this book, be reminded in chapter 1, of course, the creation account, uh, these seven days of creation. Man and woman are created in God's image. Uh, they're placed in a garden. They're told to be fruitful and multiply. And then the serpent shows up in chapter 3. And we know that this serpent is Satan, the deceiver, uh, the adversary, as is made clear in the rest of Scripture. And he comes from the very beginning. He's a liar from the beginning. He comes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say? And this is the seed of the lie that they end up believing. Specifically, you, as you know, God told them you could eat of all of the trees except this one. Don't eat of this tree. And Satan first twists the truth. Did God really say? But then he says, God didn't really say. You won't die if you eat this fruit. Adam and Eve believe uh, the serpent. Uh, we see the first sin and therefore the fall of mankind. And that brings us to where we're at in chapter 3 here. Uh, God comes and Adam and Eve run away in fear now. Um, and God addresses Adam, and you'll remember Adam blames Eve, and then Eve blames the serpent. Uh, and so God starts with the serpent. He sort of reverse order and goes serpent, uh, woman, man. And that's where we get, let me look at verse 14 as he addresses the serpent. Um, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then we have that first half. I'll read again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Even before we finish the verse, even in this first part, I would argue that we start to see the gospel, the good news proclaimed. We start to see God's graciousness, his steadfast love for his people. Even in these words, that there will be enmity, uh, hatred, warfare, between you, serpent, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And you might say, well, how is that good news? <laughs> that sounds pretty grim. Uh, here's why it's good news. Uh, the good news of enmity here, it, the promise of enmity, number one, means that Adam and Eve did not die. Uh, what did God say? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. It is by God's mere grace alone that the story didn't end here. Our Bible could have been pretty short, um, and we would have never read it, obviously. And God would have been just, because they sinned against a holy God. It was by God's free grace alone that Adam and Eve do not die. And therefore, even as he's cursing the serpent, it, it's as if God can't even get the whole cursing out of his breath without the gospel pouring out as well uh, from his steadfast love. He says that there will be enmity between, uh, I will put enmity, God will, between the woman and between uh, the offspring of Satan. Um, this means that Adam and Eve will not die. This means that Adam and Eve will have offspring. Not only will they not die, but they'll start to fulfill uh, God's command to go and be fruitful and multiply. Despite their sin, which could have ended the story, God is still going to use them in this creation mandate to fill the earth for God's glory. 
they will have offspring. And their offspring will have enmity with Satan. Do you see the deepening of the good news here? Not only will you have children, but there will always be those that call upon the name of the Lord. There will always be those who resist the temptation of Satan by my grace. There will always be a people of God. No matter how small in certain points of history or big in other points of history, God will always preserve a people. Again, God's grace is all over this passage. Even after he lays out the, the, the consequences of the fall and, and childbirth and in, in, in the world itself, I mean, I don't have to convince you that this world is broken and full of wickedness. Even there, he, God provides garments for Adam and Eve. He preserves their life. He provides for them. His grace is all over this passage. And here, the good news is that there will be a people, and they will be a people at war with Satan and his offspring. In one sense, uh, we start to see play out here and in the rest of Scripture, there are always two lines. There's a godly line that calls upon the name of the Lord, saved by grace and Christ alone, as we would say. And there's always a line, a wicked line that hates God, that loves to do what Satan wants them to do and what their own sinful flesh. We see this already in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. I mean, just physically shown this warring between these two lines, uh, the sinful and the, and the ones made righteous. Um, and yet, uh, even after Cain dist- uh, kills Abel, the first murder, even in Genesis 4, we're not even out of this section, and Seth is given to Adam and Eve, and it says at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You start to see that God makes a promise, there will be a people, and if you trace throughout the rest of Scripture, there is always a people preserved by God. That's why you have these genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10. Um, you know, you get to that in your reading plan, and they just pump you up. Um, but if you look at the forest, you would say, wait a minute, this is actually God's promise that there will be a people is playing out, um, even in the generations Uh, from Adam and Eve all the way to Noah, Genesis 5. Uh, You have God's people, Noah, protected. You have a wicked generation. Uh, uh, The descendants, the Tower of Babel. And then you have Abraham, uh, which we'll see in so much more detail in the months to come. But a promise given to Abraham that through his seed, they will have a land, there'll be a people. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is a fulfilling of what we see here in Genesis 3, 15. There will always be a people of God, always be a remnant that are carrying the torch, calling upon the name of the Lord by his grace. We see this in in the Exodus. We see this uh, later in even David and his kingdom and then the divided kingdom and then the exile. Throughout all of it, there is always a people of whom God will say, I am your God and you are my people. Cormac McCarthy In his grim post-apocalyptic book entitled The Road, he details the desperate fight for survival of a father and a son. Uh, Though gritty and realistic in its content and style, uh, parents be warned, uh, many have rightly recognized that this short book is actually a book of hope in the midst of despair. McCarthy symbolizes this with his idea of carrying the fire or carrying the torch that comes up again and again in the novel. Uh, The father says to the son, you have to carry the fire. And the son says, I don't know how to. 
He says, yes, you do. And the son says, is the fire real? And the father says, it is. The son says, where is it? I, I, I don't know where it is. Yes, you do. It's inside of you. It's always there. I can see it. Keep a little fire burning, however small, however hidden. We live in a period that is perhaps becoming more grim, more gritty. And if you look back at God's dealings with his people, there are times when it seems like, is there a people? Will the church survive? And yet throughout all of it, God fulfills his promise that there will be a people. And friend, if you've come today and you're not sure if Jesus is your Savior, let me challenge you that perhaps as you think of Jesus and sort of considering him, maybe, maybe you have a view of your own life uh, that you are the, the captain of, of your soul, uh, that you call the shots. And certainly if enough evidence was produced in front of you, uh, surely you would uh, give credence to that. And yet that's not the image of humanity that we have from here and in the rest of Scripture, uh, but that there's always these two lines. There's always a line of wickedness that hates God, uh, that loves to listen to the lies of the evil one. The evil one, by the way, who doesn't actually care for the people that follow him, but would love to see them destroyed in the process of trying to mar God's glory. Jesus puts it this way, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so if, if you're living a life that views Jesus with indifference or views Jesus with animosity, just know that you're not the captain of your destiny. You're actually following the father of lies as he seeks to have you destroyed. You're following your own sinful flesh, which the Bible says you are a slave to. You're not free. Jesus says, on the other hand, John 1.12, John says, But to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. True freedom is found for those who find themselves in, in the other line, this godly line. Uh, you're brought into it by faith looking at Jesus dying on the cross for you, receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation. I, I pray that that would be true of you, friend, even today. And so we see the, the beginning of the promise here. There will be a people. Number two, there will come a son. And there will come a son. If, if the first half focused on this collective sense that there will always be a people of God, the second, it focuses on the singular. Uh, look at the word, uh, 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 the word he. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So if the first half was offspring, like, just like we use in English, can mean collectively offspring, here it's offspring singular. Uh, there will come one who is, uh, uh, who is a child of Eve, a son of Adam, there will come one offspring, one day, who is promised even here, right at the beginning of time, who will come. A son uh, will come, a, a son of Adam, and yet the ultimate son of Adam. Where Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent, he will uh, say, get behind me, be gone, Satan, and one day crush his head as we'll see. 
a son of Israel, from this same godly line that was preserved all along throughout redemptive history. But where Israel failed, he will succeed. Where Israel struggled and sinned and wandered in the wilderness, Jesus is brought in the wilderness and he succeeds. He sends Satan away. A son of Abraham, as Paul tells us in Galatians 3, and a son of Moses. Moses says, one is coming after me. Listen to him. In Luke 9, God himself says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. As we'll see in the weeks to come, a son of David. So that as we get even to the Advent narratives, we're reminded of this son that will come in victory. And look at what's promised here. Even as God is promising that the world will be desperately broken, uh, that no longer will the ground uh, uh, cooperate, uh, that by the sweat of our brow, we will live difficult lives in many ways in this fallen world. Even as God is laying that out, he is promising there will come a son who will bruise the head of the serpent and he shall bruise your heel. Uh, This word could be translated uh, to crush, that he will crush the head of the serpent. And so there's a parallelism here, right? There, there's a crushing that happens on both ends, but it's also not parallel. Uh, the snake will crush his heel, and certainly the cross, Jesus dies, but it's not the end of the story. He rises again, and yet Christ will crush the serpent's head. A fatal blow. A fatal blow. And this very promise gets picked up throughout the Old Testament and the New. Isaiah 27.1. And that they, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Why do we have so many myths of, of a hero going to slay a dragon, but that God's image is in us and it's echoing through us? And this, of course, will happen through the bruising or the crushing of of the heel. Isaiah 53, Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And yet there's a sense in which even in Jesus' day and his ministry and certainly through the cross, that this is fulfilled, that the serpent's head was crushed and there's another sense in which we're awaiting the final, um, the final battle, the final victory over Satan that started even here in Genesis 3. Jesus said in terms of the now, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Or Luke 11, he talks about the, the metaphor of, you, you know, you can't, a, a thief can't come into a house and take someone's goods unless he's uh, bound up the bodyguard, the strong man, gotten them out of the way. Um, and Jesus is saying, I, I've done that with Satan. I, I've bound him. Uh, he is no longer in power in the way that he ever was. Uh, he is on his way to defeat. It, it, it's as if, as we've said before, D-Day has happened. There were still battles to be fought, but it was a losing battle. And V-Day is coming. Revelation 12:9. the great dragon is thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, and Revelation 20, he and his angels are thrown into the lake of fire. So that Genesis 3 echoes all the way to the end of Scripture. Paul puts these together, the the now and the not yet, when he says in Romans 16, the God of peace 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Christian, why is this good news for us? Right here at the beginning of Scripture, there will be a people at war. There will come a son in victory. Why is this good news for you in times like these that we live in? You know, there's, there's good debates happening. Do, do we live in unprecedented times? Do we live in times like no other time? And I think we could say yes and no. In one sense, of course, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are some unprecedented things that we're seeing. Even just, just the internet itself, bringing the good and the bad sort of just right in front of us. Um, and so the wickedness is able to spread in a way, it has avenues it never had before. And so if you've been feeling the weight of that, or the weight of this world, the, where do we go from here? What's the future of the church as, as, as we see people fleeing the church? Is the church going to survive even in our land? In one sense, it's unprecedented, but in another sense, it's not unprecedented at all. Psalm 2, for instance, another Old Testament text, could have been written about our day, could it not? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. That's nothing new, and God's response is nothing new. It's the same God who, who sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What's God's response then and now? He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do you see the echoes? It's the same promise. It's the same as Genesis 3.15. There will come a son who will crush the head of the, of the serpent. So that the response in Psalm 2 is kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish on the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That was the response of the wicked nations in, in, the, in the days that the psalmist was writing. That's our response now. And the blessedness for those who would find refuge in this son promised in Genesis 3, 15. We've said that diving into this series is like sort of moving upstream from the stream to the lake to those glaciers and seeing that God's steadfast love is, it comes deeper than we would have ever expected. And you could say that we still haven't dug deeply enough. Titus 1, 1 and 2 speaks of the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Before Genesis 3.15, before time, his eternal life, the hope of eternal life was promised. Or Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's, it's Genesis 3.15, you realize, is, is downstream in terms of time, and it's downstream because it's flowing out of who God is. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's, it's, it's looking to those glacial uh, uh, ice that's melting and realizing that it first came from the heavens themselves as, as the rain poured down and froze, coming from who God is. Genesis 3.15 exists because of who God is in his steadfast love for his people. 
If, we, if you could see that, dear Christian, you could anchor your soul there in this God, and I pray that you would. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you indeed for your steadfast love that's never ending, that we could never plumb the depths of. And we thank you for this promise, this good news found right here at the beginning of your word. And we thank you for your faithfulness. We know that if, if, you could do, if you could preserve a line, if you could bring about a son in the midst of all of this sin and wickedness, then certainly you could be with us now in the trials and the sins that we face. I pray that you would provide for your people here, even this morning, I pray in Jesus' name.